listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Vicky Marinka. And today I'm sitting with Mark Schmid. Mark is the Joint Managing Director at Simmons & Schmid. Previously, he was Director at Freud's and has been at several other agencies like Good Relations and Portonavelli. He's also been an in-house communications director at Talk Talk. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm well, Vicky. Thank Good. you for having me along. So let's just start with a few basic questions. First of all, how would you describe what you do to strangers? I don't run up to people in the street, grab them and insist on telling them what I do. Um, but if I am accosted and asked, I put it pretty simply. I tell them that my job, what gets me up in the morning, is helping the misunderstood to be better understood. And that could be an organisation or a business. Because really, if you're going to sell something to someone, and that's pretty much what all of our clients are looking to do, you have to have a degree of understanding and trust. And so what I do is help to tell those stories, explain what they do, why they do it, to get to the end result that the business I work for wants. And what is Simmons and & Schmidt and what do you do here? So we're a pretty new business. We've only been up and running since September, but Tim and I have got 20 odd years each experience in marketing and communications. Uh, in my case, with a slant very much towards public relations, with Tim, a bias towards more creative and integrated marketing. And so we do a balance of both of those things. And at the moment, most of the work we do is in technology, uh, specifically in B2B technology. But we've also got a couple of interesting projects that take us outside of that. Can you give me a potted history of your career for the listeners in a few sentences? In a few sentences, yes. 25 years of, of working in, in this game in, in London. I've worked in agencies, both big and small. I've had a spell in the middle where I worked in-house in telecommunications uh, for Talk Talk and, and Carphone Warehouse. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. I've worked with some incredible people and I've learned so much. And I've had some difficult experiences, but overall whether I've been in an agency or in-house, I'm very pleased with the career I fell into. Well, we can talk about some of those experiences here. So today we're going to have a chat about the importance of forming strong relationships mm. in PR, and particularly the importance of the relationship between the PR agency and the in-house client. There seems to be endless shopping around by clients looking for new public relations support. I want to talk to you about your experiences of the pitching process from both an agency and an in-house perspective. Tell me, do you think that refreshing agency support on a regular basis is a good way to get fresh ideas or is it actually counterproductive? Pitching can be a good way of getting new ideas. I would say that if your only way of motivating agencies to come up with great ideas for you is having a pitch process, then you might be doing something wrong and your agencies are certainly doing something wrong. Agencies should consistently be coming up with new ideas for their clients. Part of an agency's role is to be the eyes and ears, to be out there in the world, bringing in new influences. Easy to say, harder to do perhaps when you have a, a tight scope and you have your work in progress and all of your team are focused on the list of things to do. But as an agency, you have to allow yourself a little bit of time to step away from that. I always think that's what the most senior guys and girls in the agency must do, step away from the day-to-day -day and think, what new can we bring to the client to, to surprise and delight them, to, to make their lives easier internally and to wake them up a bit to all the things we can do? And the best agencies do that. And the long-term relationships, I think, where agencies are able to 
consistently reinvent themselves in the client's eyes. So the clients have the confidence that even if they're not directly pushing every single day, the agency is motivated and self-driven to come up with a steady stream of new ideas at the right times based in their business need. Do you think clients realise the work that agencies put in to go through a pitch process? Absolutely they don't. Okay. And that's probably the fault of agencies too. I mean, why would clients? You know, clients have got a thousand and one things to think about. They don't really think about how agencies run. Also, I sometimes think that through being nicey-nicey in the process and saying all the right things, we perhaps don't give the right impression. Pretty much every pitch starts off with a, uh, we've loved working on this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been amazing being part of the process. As if it's an end in itself. It really isn't. Don't try and dress it up that just being part of the beauty parade is the end that your business is shooting for. Perhaps we can be more honest. Perhaps we can say, we've enjoyed this process. We've put so much into it. You know, as an agency, we've probably invested £40,000 in getting to where we are today because we really want to be the agency, the partner of your choice. We want to take it forward and grow this with you and be successful together. And this is a demonstration of quite how committed we are to you rather than giving it the idea that it's just been like a, a team bonding exercise to, to stay up late and uh, fret about this all weekend. You've obviously been in-house and you've also been agency side, so you innately know what goes into a pitch from the agency perspective. Is there anything else that the agency community can do to educate clients about that process and the work that goes into it? Absolutely think there is. I think we can be much more honest about the uh, costs involved in going for business. I think that would focus clients' minds because clients are generally fair people. They just don't often realise. I think also uh, we have to be aware that there are always going to be agencies that lead a race to the bottom in terms of rates and what they're willing to do in pitching as well. I think for the most part, agencies should stand pretty firm in terms of what they're willing to do for a pitch and what they are. If you give away entirely all of your strategic thinking and all of your creative work, I mean, what's left? And I think in certain sectors, you just wouldn't get there. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the move of management consultants into marketing services. You wouldn't expect McKinsey or someone like that to, to give you all their thinking at the pitch process. That's, that's their IP. That's their asset. That's what you're paying them for. Um, and you'd hire them based on their expertise and their reputation. I think agencies sometimes are too willing to, to give too much away. Have you ever pitched as the incumbent agency and what goes through your mind when you're asked to re-pitch by an existing client? That's such a good question. As the incumbent, my mindset always is we haven't got a chance. If they're going through this process, we haven't got a chance. But there are a number of examples where the incumbent agency has actually been able to show something new of themselves. Can I tell and you an anecdote at this stage? Please. I just have to get this in. So I used to work in PR, as some of my listeners will know. And back in the day, I was asked to repitch for a business services company who shall remain nameless. Uh, but we were the incumbent agency and put in a, a fairly good effort during the repitch, me and a colleague. And at the end of our presentation, the client turned to me and said very pointedly, so why are you presenting these ideas to us now that you're under threat? Why didn't you present these ideas to us or have these ideas in the last five years that we were working with you? And do you know what? I just didn't have an answer. Mm. And we didn't win that pitch. Well, that, Vicky, is why 
clients like to pitch because they feel that they don't get the new thinking. As an incumbent, I think all an incumbent can work for, ask for is absolute honesty. Uh, in one of my in-house roles, there was a pitch taking place and the uh, one of the senior uh, specifiers, and not from the PR and marketing discipline, said that we should include the incumbent. Now, the brief had changed entirely, absolutely nothing like the brief before, and it wasn't particularly well suited to the incumbent, and they recognised that. And the CEO of that agency rang me up and said, have we been invited to this as a courtesy or because you think we've got a chance of winning? And I said, my view is it is a courtesy play. And I understand that you probably won't want to put yourself and your agency through this. Why don't you just end the great work you've done with us on a high? You'll always be highly lauded by what you've done when we were in a place where we needed that kind of work. I think now we're looking for something different. If you want to pitch, you can. I'm giving you an honest feedback that I think is unlikely you'll you'll prevail. It was very pleased that I'd said that and they gratefully declined. Kudos to the agency for asking the question. It must have been a difficult question Mm. to ask. Mm. I've had some of my best moments pitching. The, The feeling after you've done it, even before you know the result, Nearly always, if you've given the best of yourself, there's a wonderful feeling of camaraderie afterwards. It's almost postprandial. You go out for a lunch or a drink and you feel kings of the world because you've all come together. And pitching in many ways is the lifeblood of agencies. And then you wait. And sometimes you wait and wait and wait. And sometimes you never actually hear back. Sometimes never. No no feedback at all. Nothing at all. Um, That has happened. Um, So pitching can be wonderful, but in and of itself, it is a means to an end. And every agency can only pitch if they are sometimes converting those into wins. And if you don't have a chance, if it's already been decided that the outcome is known, then it is a criminal waste of time and money. I'd really like to know how you would have answered the question that I was posed in that pitch because I sometimes wake up at night thinking about it and I still don't have an answer. So if the client had turned to you at the end of a pitch where you're the incumbent and said, well, why didn't you think of this before? What would you have said? Well, I would have been stumped, to be honest, Vicky, but I might have said there's two ways you could approach that. One is by giving a very PR answer, which would be we're all about cultural relevance. And the ideas we've come up with today are all about tapping into the news agenda, the now. Mm. If we'd have come up with these ideas six months or a year ago, they wouldn't have in any way been in in really the relevant space for for your audiences. That's the PR answer. Or you could be more honest and say the best relationships have a healthy tension throughout and both parties pushing each other to do best work. There has been a time in our relationship with you, client repitching us, where we have not, on both sides, been getting the best out of each other. We think that the brief you've given us to repitch for you is the best brief we've had from you in two years, and the best work has come out as a result. I like that. I like that very much. It's really interesting that you talk about relationships and healthy tensions. Do you think that... um the chemistry within the team that pitches is also important and how does a client sense that when they're in in that situation chemistry within the team is of the 
utmost importance. How does client sense it? They sense it just by being human beings. Uh, I sometimes think that we forget in business that we are all human beings. And we've from the time we were children, we've learned how to read people and how to react in different situations. I've been in agencies before where people have produced great results, but they don't get on fantastically. And that can be fine in some scenarios. In a pitch presentation, with all that goes with it, all the emotion, the tension of getting together, the being on stage, that having that very limited time to shine, you have to have chemistry between the team. Otherwise, the client will pick it up. Because in those high stress moments, however good at putting a facade, however good an actor you are, often you can just see chinks in the armory of, oh, those two don't get on. Do I really want them? working with me and my team if they can't even get on with each other. I'm sure you've got some brilliant stories to tell about pitching. Can you give us the best and the worst of the pitching situations you've been in? My biggest pitch horror story, I think, was when we did a lot of work to prepare for seeing Barclay Card, very prestigious brand. This was a long time ago, so no one will still be there now, so I can I can say their name, I'm sure. Uh, we went to their beautiful, gleaming kind of offices in the, in the city, and we began. And while we began to present, uh, we saw that on the other side of the glass, this wonderful buffet was being laid out. Soon it was obvious that everyone in the room was more interested in the buffet. One by one, they left to go in. Until out of 12, which seemed an awfully lot for people to start with, only two remained. And we said, shall we wait while people get their lunch? No, carry on. And so we could see the other 10 outside chatting and eating their lunch while we carried on with our presentation. We knew straight away that we were done. We found out later that it was because our initial idea we presented was very similar to one of the agencies that had already seen that day and they decided between them they didn't particularly like it. So they thought, oh, why even bother listening to these guys? We've rejected this from someone else. We may as well go and stuff our faces. Unbelievable. How rude. That wasn't great. But I remember we had a great uh, great session in the pub afterwards lamenting that. So sometimes a, a bonding comes out of these experiences. Uh, on the other hand, an experience that was painful, but in the end was a huge rush of both uh, adrenaline and uh, and, and joy really was for British Airways again a long time ago now and it was in December we were doing the pitch process and there were quite a few involved and we got down to the final three or four I think and we were going to be pitching just before Christmas like the 22nd or 23rd of December and we went out to Heathrow and we did it and we felt amazing and we got the feedback was really really strong and they said we can't split you and one other we want you to come back on the morning of Christmas Eve. I was straight away, this is, this is not right. This is obviously a, a test. You know, how much do you want this? I was talked around to the person who was most close to it saying, hey, this is 24-hour-a-day operation. These guys flying all around the world every day. You know, Christmas Day morning, they'll have flights going everywhere. It's probably just how they operate. Don't take it quite so personally. It also meant that we'd need to miss the night before the PR agency Christmas party. Now, you remember, Vicky, from when we were young, PR agency Christmas parties were something you did look forward to for you know, many, many months, uh, probably regretted for many months afterwards. But they were a big deal. And you know, the kind of age me and the team were, we didn't want to miss this thing. But we missed 
the party to do the pitch. That we went on Christmas Eve morning. We did a fantastic job. We went for a lunch uh, just before we all headed off to our respective uh, families for Christmas. We got the call while we were at lunch that we got it, and it was a big January campaign that we were able to kick off soon afterwards. So that was joy. And I must say, I learned something there because I'd have given that up. I was prepared to say, nope. We're not going to do this Christmas Eve thing. We'll go back to our families. This is too much. But actually, that was a real reason for acting as they did. And they acted in good faith and they gave us the good news before Christmas. I've only thought now about the team they had to give that bad news till Christmas Eve. I hope they waited. I was just going to ask that question. Poor other agency that had to go in and pitch on the same day. Yeah. Anyway. I never. That's it. When you win, you don't even ask these questions. Mm. So you interview. when you do an interview down the line, you'll hear the other side of that story and that will be their worst day ever. <laughs> so the cure to all this pitch heartache and adrenaline is building up long-term relationships. So tell me about where long-term relationships have worked so well. Long-term relationships can be easily dismissed as laziness sometimes or almost nepotism or whatever the word is just for when you get so comfortable with something that that you don't want to change it. But I've seen examples at a number of agencies how consistently great work comes from long-term relationships. At Freud's, they worked, the team there worked for Public Health England for 10 years and did consistently good work, still do today on their major campaigns. At Ogilvy, I think they've worked for Dove for like 50 years. I do think as well that the, the great agencies in those, in those examples are very good at changing things up. They don't wait to be asked to repitch. They're consistently coming up with new ideas. They build wonderful relationships, not just with the marketing and PR teams, but they understand how legal operates, how finance operates, how ops operates. They actually understand the heartbeat and the pulse of the business. So they can often help their client get things done quicker and more effectively. The client might be relatively new in their role, or certainly they probably don't have the 10, 20, or 50 years experience of dealing with this company the same way the agency does. And so often, if you're a client and comes on in, your first thought might be, I'll change everything. But actually, you might find an agency that knows your your business better than you do and can help you get things done better. Is there a danger that after five or 10 years of working with the same agency, you've actually got a completely different team? Yes. There's, there, well, is there a danger of that? I think there's a possibility of it, and I don't think it's necessarily dangerous. I would have thought that in most cases, having freshen up of the team every couple of years is both inevitable because of the way agencies have people coming and going and also desirable. I'm reminded when you ask that, Vicky, of a famous part of Only Fools and Horses, a classic show. I'm sure you're a big fan. Big fan. Big fan. When Trigger, the road sweeper, gets given an award by his employer, the local council, for saving them money. And Del Boy and Rodney ask how he managed to save this money. And Trigger says, well, it's by having the same broom for 20 years. And Del Boy says, well, you can't ever have used the thing. It'd be worn out. And Trigger says, oh, no, 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 Del. Um, I've had 17 new heads and 14 new handles. (laughs) And Rodney says, it's not really the same broom anymore, is it? But I think in agency life, you might have a new creative, you might have a new planner, you might bring in some new insight and research, of course, and these might all be led by different people at different times. But the best agencies have a culture, they have a way of doing things. Of course, that evolves over time. 
but they have that ability to always have enough continuity and have enough fresh thinking to make the relationship endure. I'm just going to ask a few final questions, Mark, which I'm going to ask everyone going forward on the podcast. So what one campaign do you think you'll be remembered for, whether that's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons? The campaign I had the most fun with, I think I most enjoyed and was most effective at the time, was when I was uh, in-house at TalkTalk. We had some great agencies working with us and the campaign was all around brighter ideas. We were competing with Sky and BT Virgin Media, had deep, deep pockets. We were the upstarts, really. We didn't have the kind of budgets they had. But we did have a focus on the family, a focus on the home, and a focus on value. So we had a series of tactics that would all ladder up to that, uh, including one that got us into a little bit of trouble, which was called put-pocketing. We hired a former uh, criminal, a reformed pickpocket. And our ruse was that he was being filmed putting fivers into people's pockets around (laughs) Covent Garden, just up the road from where we're speaking now. And then the film crew would stop the individual and ask them to have a look in their pockets. And to their amazement, they'd find some cash. On the reverse of the cash, it'd say, this is how much you could save if you switched to TalkTalk. This, of course, got a couple of outraged comments in, you know, red top newspapers and, and some radio radio interviews saying you know how could we employ this person but it got the message across really clearly and it did it in a fun and a reverent way and in those times i was the um spokesperson for the company so i used to often uh, hop onto the um bbc breakfast sofa for example which is just down the road from, from where i was living in, in white city at the time early in the morning to do the interviews I remember doing one around a campaign called we'll call you which was saying that uh, millions of our customers didn't speak to people that often, especially the elderly ones, and there was a big issue with loneliness. So off the back of a mental health report, we set up an initiative where we said we would phone any customers who wanted us to once a month just for a chat. We wouldn't sell them anything, just for a chat. So I really enjoyed those campaigns. Uh, they did help us uh, stand out as the value leader. They also helped us you know, change the narrative a bit about the company, which had been all very much about um, customer service issues prior to that and subsequent to that. But there was a moment in time when we were able to talk just about our value and we had some fun with it. Who from history would you most like to have had the opportunity to work with or do the communications for? Someone who I think has had a, a rough shake in terms of how their legacy is summarised is King Canute. He was the ruler of Sweden and Denmark and England, I think. And uh, he is often categorised now as the person who stood in the face of the inevitable. Actually, if you do a bit more research into his story, what he was saying was that no man or woman has the power that nature holds, even if you're the ruler of the land. So to illustrate that, he jumped in the Thames and tried to hold back the tide. He, of course, knew his feet would get wet. In history, King Canute is now summarised as a bit of a fool who thought he could hold back the tides. That wasn't, wasn't it at all. He was demonstrating the power of nature and the fact that just as a man, he didn't have those powers at all. So I would hope that with me by his side, King Canute could be recognised for the wise fellow that he really was. So I'm sure there'll be some listeners who are just starting out in communications or who are interested in a career in public relations and corporate comms. What advice would you give someone just starting out? I'd say be curious. There are so many ways now that we can get information at our fingertips from social media. That's revolutionised how we understand and how we communicate. But I also say it can be, of course, a bit of an echo chamber. So read as widely 
as you can. Read views that you don't necessarily agree with. Read commentary and leader articles in The Guardian and the Daily Mail, looking at the same issue from two very different standpoints. Don't ignore the mainstream media, even though you're naturally going to be receiving most of uh, the information and certainly the entertainment that you need via social media. And what predictions do you have for the future of communications? Are you optimistic? Communications has such a rosy future. I mean, I'm an optimist anyway, as you know, Vicky, but I've seen in the last six months during lockdown, even those businesses that have traditionally been very closed and aren't natural communicators, maybe they haven't had to be because of the sectors they're in, they've begun to see the advantages of opening up a little bit more and having a point of view on certain issues. That's demanded now. I don't think you can hide behind just a bland corporate statement anymore. Your people within your business demand that. Certainly the outside stakeholders do. And there's much more risk now of being seen as a dinosaur and getting left behind and not being on top of all of the ways that we have and the duty we have to be more open and transparent. That door is now open and try as some people might, I don't think you can close the door on that. You have to be in dialogue with all the people that are important to you. Thank you. It's been really fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. You've been listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Vicky Marinka. I was interviewing Mark Schmid. Sorry for the poor sound quality. We were in a fairly echoey office this week. I now have a Facebook page if you'd like to pop along and leave me some comments or if you've got any questions for Mark or would like to put yourself forward as a podcast guest or perhaps recommend someone I can speak to. The address is facebook.com slash DSTM podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.